So welcome back to another episode of Political Football. I believe it is season two, episode three. Um, that's right. If you've been living under a rock for the last week, uh, you might not have heard the federal budget dropped. Um, a lot of about faces going on. A lot of red being seen uh, across the federal budget paper. Something we're going to dive in today. And for a political football first, I'd like to introduce um, a special co-host today, um, Isabella Marucci. Is that how you say it correctly? I believe uh. I do live in Five Dock, so um, I do like to pronounce my uh, Italian surnames with a special zest. Is that right? Look, I hate to correct you, but it's kind of more like Marucci. Marucci. Yeah, that's how you say. Really wanky about it. Um, that's fine. But honestly, I've always had to Aussie it down, so it's yeah. Marici, Marici, yeah. whatever's easiest. Poor, poor you, poor you. Um, <laughs> so we're going to kick off uh, this week's but um, episode by talking about the federal budget. Um, first of all, we'll start off with the economics, obviously. Uh, that is my wheelhouse, and according to Isabella, she stacks up in that space too, but we'll see how she goes. Um, special shout-out to my usual co-host, Joe Boyden, down there in Canberra, uh, the nation's capital, where much of the events of the last week transpired. Um, he's down there moulding some young minds, uh, no doubt um, a future New South Wales Teacher of the Year recipient right there. But that's enough for that point in time. Uh, let's get into it. Uh, Isabella, your thoughts initially on the budget uh, what did you like? What didn't you like? And perhaps just give us an over, overview of what you thought of it. Um, look, I would say it was nothing special. It was a typical pre-election budget. Um, you had a lot of cash being splashed around, particularly in areas where the Libs know they need to get some votes, aka women. Um, and I to some extent was impressed by some of the areas that they were spending in. But overall, I didn't see anything that was quite visionary. And I can see stimulating long-term um, supply-side growth. But, you know, it was, it was good enough. <laughs> yep, very good. So obviously there, I think that's been a bit of a consensus perspective, right? That it's been um, like a labour spending budget, right? You've often heard, heard that mm. term. Um, but it's been a lack of sort of like it's been a patch up job or, or renovation job as um, chief economist at EY Jeremy Thorpe uh, had, did say um, it's also been done the hot chocolate budget in relation to everybody um, getting some a slice of the pie. One um, of my favourites was um, the showbag budget. The showbag budget. That it's exciting when you get it, but everything breaks um, pretty soon after. Who, who came up with that one? That was um, Anthony Albanese in his oh, really? budget reply speech. Albo. There you go. Yes, I hate to quote him, but it was a pretty <laughs> good one. Um, and there's been a variety of other pop, pop culture references, uh, euphemistically trying to explain the budget. Uh, Nobel Crab last week calling it the pizza with the lot, um, which is <laughs> seems to be quite a flattering um, perspective and seems to be like everyone loves to compare it to some sort of food item, uh, whether it be MasterChef or even if I've heard it compared to a couple of food shows. Um, but... Uh, yeah, as, I, as you said, it's certainly a pre-election budget. Uh, if we just go th- quickly through some of the key economic indicators, I've uh, got a $161 billion budget deficit in 2022, um, growth of 4.25% for this year, um, which obviously rebounding off um, our sort of highest ever drop uh, in GDP in Q2 2021, or sorry, 2020, get my years mixed up there, but before falling back to 2.5%, um, in 22-23, which um, similar numbers going forward over the forward estimates. 
Had a steady decline in unemployment from 5.5% to 4.75% in 22-23. So the first time in over a decade, unemployment will fall below 5%, which is a welcome path the government is deciding to tread. Um, wages still flat as a tack, 1.25% 2021, 1.5% um, next year before a bit of upward tick in 22, 2.25% and inflation still not much to ride home about there. Um, so the question I'm gonna pose Isabella after I've just uh, mundanely talked through all those numbers <laughs> is that are we getting the bang for buck? So we've seen a lot of stuff on a sort of welcome spending on aged care, um, some childcare subsidies, you know, some guaranteeing of funding for infrastructure, the NDIS. I don't think anyone's going to um, got any qualms about that, right? But are we seeing the reform necessary? Are we getting bang for buck for being effectively a trillion dollars in debt by 2030? Mm, it's kind of hard to say because it's a matter of what, where would we be if we didn't do this? You're damned if you do, damned if you don't. And um, although these numbers aren't super impressive, when you put them in context compared to the rest of the world, they kind of are, particularly that unemployment rate um, falling below 5% and those growth rates. Um, in terms of wages and inflation, I think we can get onto this more a bit later, but I don't think anyone's expecting any of those numbers to be stellar in the near future. In fact, I think that we need to accept that wage growth and inflation is going to fall to a new average. So in terms of getting bang for your buck, I would say that these numbers are solid, but they're kind of artificially propped up by the fact that there is so much government stimulus in the economy right now. And once that eventually has to go away because, you know, we have to pay for this eventually. I don't know how these numbers are going to stack up because I don't see anything in here yet that makes me think that we've got long-term sustainable growth being achieved. I think you're spot on there. Um, and one point I'd love to pick up on uh, was your discussion around unemployment. Now, um, for someone like me, I, unemployment is a key statistic for me. You know, it's what... Mm. Um, sort of drives the economy working for the for people, not the other way around. Um, and I'm glad to see this sort of discussion evolve. And I think you've seen this language from the RBA, Treasury over the last 12 months um, in a bit of an about face as well. It's like they thought the, the non-accelerating inflation rate of unemployment was around that 5% mark. But what they've realised over the last decade is that wages haven't moved very much at all. Um, and given the sort of recalibration of the amount of part-time work that exists in the economy, the amount of, the amount of casual work that exists in the economy, um, that rate was naturally going to fall lower um, as a percentage of the total workforce. So we're starting to hear numbers around like the high, the mid to low fours or even the high threes. Um, Ross Garneau was a big proponent of that. And the thing with the Nairu, um, as they call it, um, is you don't know it until you actually hit it, until you start seeing inflation going up to mm. a sustainable level between that two to three percent ban and I know you mentioned before in relation to it being a sort of an unsustainable target with that two to three percent I mean most RBA most central banks across the world have reviewed um, their inflation targets um, over the last decade um, especially since the GFC and have sort of revised it down or um, been a bit more cautious about that and funnily enough in America we're actually seeing some uh, inflation in some pockets I suppose given how much stimulus there is in the economy over there but 
for me, this evolves the economic debate. Right, the last decade, it's been mired in this debt and deficit sort of discussion um, where it's oversimplified things for what everything actually represents. Um, and hopefully now we can start to see a more either structural versus cyclical approach, which I think would manifest labour labor going for a more structural perspective that there's been changes in the economy, the old rules no longer work, so there has to be a return to how, how um, companies bargain with employees, um, you know, ramifications around um, part-time casual work in the gig economy, whereas the coalition will go with that cyclical argument where if we get unemployment low enough, that's when wages will start to increase. So um, that's an involvement uh, in the right direction for the economic debate, and I certainly think um, we'll be better for it. Um, and one thing I have noticed, I'm not sure whether I'd love to get you to weigh in on this, but um, I've seen a lot of, in the post-mortem of this budget, a lot more discussion about the policy than as opposed to recent recent years over the last decade where it's just been about sort of attacking from an ideological perspective. So I think this is the point we needed to get to. And call me an optimist, call me an optimist if you will, but um, you'd love to get your thoughts on that. Um, looking at the articles I have in front of me, I don't know if I fully agree with that. It's kind of as expected, a lot of ideology discussion um, in terms of people being shocked that the Libs would be willing to spend so much in a budget um, and also making light of the fact that this is a typical Labor budget and a lot of commentary around the change in ideology from the coalition. And also I saw a lot of discussion about big government versus the typical small government um, ideology of the Liberal Party. So honestly, I didn't even see that much discussion of the policy. I saw a lot about the change in ideology. And I guess that that's to be expected for a pre-election budget. But I don't know if I... think we've progressed that far yet right i mean i'm also a bit of cynicism going... to sort of wrap around my my optimism that's fair enough well i'm looking at the more mainstream stuff i'm not gonna lie i may have gotten some of my information from the daily oz purely because you know young people want easy digestible sure breakdown of the budget we'll just we'll just edit that part out in post in post no, i'm just kidding i'm just kidding oh <laughs> it's like what have i done wrong um so, yeah, I I think that I I haven't seen that much in-depth analysis um, on the actual effects of. And one thing that I can't come to terms with is when you're given a budget, you're given all of these numbers and you're given all these projections. And I mean, as the average person that can barely use an Excel spreadsheet, I have no way of testing whether these numbers are actually based on good fundamental principles. And so, you know, for example, when I was looking at the Labor reply to the budget, of course, Labor are just saying, well, the Libs are overpromising, blah, blah, blah. But I have, the average reader has no way to really test that. So I think that's a kind of gap in um, the commentary on the budget, just generally. Sure, and I suppose it goes into forecast. I mean, these are big numbers rattling off, but behind every billion dollars worth of policy, there is lots of implementation and policy delivery thing and aspects that go into it, right? I mean, it's easy to stand up there and deliver policy announcements and say you're committing this amount of money 
to uh, an issue, but I saw Julie Bishop last week in a panel discussion actually say uh, it's uh, about the quality of the spend, right? And um, I wouldn't be the first person to sort of quote Julie Bishop every day, day in, day out, but I thought it was a fair point because, as I said, going back to my original point, are we getting value for money? Um, You know, we're going to a trillion dollars worth of debt um, over the long term to effectively see no real wage increase um, and, you know, the... You know, we're not seeing enough reform. You know, even with the aged care policy, they said, you know, it needed to commit nine to $10 billion, $10 billion a year to fix the issues. That's according to the Royal Commission um, that was handed down by the government. They've committed $17.7 billion over five years. So, again, plugging a hole. Um, again, and not really de- dealing with the structural issues um, of the budget. But if we go ahead and look at um, one of my favourite areas, tax reform. Um, and again, something government doesn't really want to touch because it is a bit of a poison chalice. Mm. We've seen the extension of the $7.8 billion in Lamito or Lemington, as some call it, the lower middle <laughs> income tax offset. Um, so this can effectively kick in the can down the road, whether they in, sort of entrench that um, into sort of tax for that forty to $90,000 bracket range. Um, it's hard to see how they're just going to hand out $7 million worth of tax cuts every year and make it sustainable. Um, but also brings into a broader issue, perhaps this could be something the next election uh, key battleground, the stage three tax cuts, which are already legislated for 24, 25, uh, but effectively worth $17 billion a year. And they give the biggest tax break for those uh, earning over 180000 and 200000 So um, whether those circumstances have changed where Labor says we're going to agree with the sort of the premise of the uh, of the stage three tax cuts up to 180,000 but not over 180,000 that's something I certainly I think Labor would be worth investigating uh, and potentially pursuing again um, the you know the vast majority of taxpayers are, are not under over that $180,000 bracket mm. um, and sit under that and obviously it's much more popular if you're saying you, you know give a, a lower middle income tax offset because it's much more tax you know, people who pay tax in those brackets, right, just by sheer numbers of what the uh, people's salary is. Um, I think the other thing that's important to note about giving tax offsets to lower middle income earners is their marginal propensity to spend. And that you give a lower middle income earner more money, they're more likely to spend it in the economy because um, they are kind of living on the fringe of their budget. So you're more likely to get that Keynesian multiplier effect when you... Oh, Keynesian multiplier. Yeah, the choir. had to um, dig deep through my year 12 economics notes for that one. Um, whereas when you're giving a tax offset to higher income earners, they're more likely to save more of it yeah. or put it towards assets, which are already inflated. Yeah. So I think that in terms of getting bang for your buck... Um, you are the government is better off dedicating those tax cuts to yeah. middle class Australians. Yeah, and there's only a certain point where you can get like tax cuts only get so far, right? You keep cutting tax, right? That's you you less you're reducing the base of, of revenue, right? You gotta remember what tax pays for, right? It pays for my auntie, you know, who's got multiple sclerosis and it pays for her NDIS plan and you know, so she's allowed that she can go to the bathroom and be able to shower and that, that sort of thing and be able to get around the house and has a ramp and that sort of thing. So mm. I feel like tax is so often talked about in a sort of a, a negative or a deficit term, if you will. But um, there's got to get to a point where saving, saving measures isn't going to wipe out a trillion dollars worth of debt or get us back in the surplus, right? We're going to have to 
brought in the base of the tax of the taxes, and we're going to have to have these discussions, right? As hard as they will be, but you know, often when it comes to tax, the society, like you know, whether it comes to negative gearing or the dividend imputation tax, or you know, when it comes to capital gains or you know, mining tax, is that there's a <coughs> excuse me, swallowed a fly in here. Um, there's a small percentage of people that'll be worse off for it and they can campaign the loudest and often that voice gets overheard of what the actual tax drive will do to improve the economy as a whole. Um, so I'd love to see a pivot uh, in that discussion because, again, um, taxation it pays for the essential services that we want in a society. Often I feel like if you would get people to vote to sit down in the room and they said, this is what the tax will pay for, this is the services you can access, uh, but this is the rate of tax we're going to have to go across the economy. They pick the service, right? Because people value that. What do people value from government? They value universal health care, right? They value mm. that they can access superannuation so they can fund their own retirement, right? They, they value, you know, um, in a enterprise bargaining or having the minimum wage so that, you know, they can get get by um, and live, a, live a, a relatively decent life, right? These are the things people value from, from government, right? Um, and I feel like the conversation's gone away from that. You know, we hear this sort of conversation, even when it comes to sort of carbon um, and climate change policy, technology, not taxes. Well, it's like the most efficient way to achieve it is, <laughs> is through a carbon price, right? I mean, there's a reason economists are proponents of a carbon price, right? But we'll probably never see that again because of the political poison chalice that it is. So again, I'm in the camp of policy here. Um, and not everything you do is going to be the most... Um, politically savvy move when it comes to this, when it's the right thing to do. But um, sometimes you just got to have the political will to drive these things forward. Um, and I think this is certainly one of those times because, again, we don't want to be leaving, you know, trillions and trillions of dollars worth of debt that the next generation can't pay off. But we also want to be able to live in a society where everyone can have a, you know, get get the most out of the opportunity that they're getting. You know, life's a bit of a lottery in terms of. Where you, you know where you come from, but you want to be able to have that sort of social and economic mobility. And sorry, I've just gone a bit of a soliloquy, but that's how I feel. And, and listening to the podcast over the last week that I've been listening to, Democracy Sausage with Mark Kenny, um, the Lowy Institute with Ross Garno, and a variety of other ones. And um, this is sort of a point that's shone through. So um, we'll move on from there. Um, just a couple of other measures I'll quickly announce. One point two billion dollars in digital economy strategy. I think that's good. Um, there's a lot of growth space uh, in. It's a sort of transition from the traditional economy to the digital economy. Another space where you could potentially explore there is a circular economy. Um, the instant asset write-off extension to June 30, 2023. So extending those effectively as uh, one of my favorite Seinfeld references goes. Um, you know, what do they do? They just write it off. Um, <laughs> so effectively for 99% of businesses, um, Cost incurs a so called a ute led recovery. You can you can write you'd off so you don't have to pay. You can reduce your tax burden there. Um, but moving on to perhaps some of the losers, and I know we've sort of had a wide ranging discussion there. Um, what are some of the things you would have liked to see spent on the budget, but perhaps weren't? Um, honestly, I'm not the most creative when it comes to policy, so I'm gonna let you drive a lot of this discussion. Um, the only thing that I, that sort of came to my mind was, and maybe this is probably too expensive, a further discussion, but, um, migrants and, um, in terms of our, yeah, just that 
category in itself and the treatment of immigration at the moment during COVID has been a bit of a disaster by the Liberal government. But aside from that, I mean, they hit all the high points and they sound good. Um, There isn't like any areas that I'm thinking, well, I would like to see more money in. It's more a matter of I would like to see more creative policy than here's some more funding. Sure. What about you? Um, well, as you can imagine, I've got a few hit. I've got a few on the hit list. Um, the one I'll start with is universities, and I know you're quite uh, strongly about <laughs> on, on universities, but I mean, they've just been dragged through the mud the last twelve months, and I feel like it's been a bit off the radar um, in terms of the common political debate that's been taking place across mainstream media and more targeted areas as well. By varying reports, there's been at least 17,000 university jobs wiped. Uh, we've seen huge cuts. I'm currently doing um, some postgraduate coursework um, in government international relations at the University of Sydney, and they've had to cut 28 staff. The staff that remain doing four or five units as well as doing their own research. So go figure in relation to how they could possibly deliver that. Um, you'd have to be you know, the second coming of Aristotle to be able to deliver that. Um, and I'm saying these guys are smart guys as well, but it's just impossible to um, deliver that and not sort of diminish on quality. Uh, and let's not forget what the, the bedrock universities are to our society, right? They literally, for every dollar you pump into public research uh, at a university level, you get $5 return because over half of startups, um, start universities, um, they're the bedrock for ideas, not only just in terms of um, professional industries like law, engineering, uh, medicine, but also in terms of liberal arts, which um, often cop the short end of the stick saying, what are they good for? But um, what, what do you think, the, you know, the, the sort of the creative aspects that we often enjoy, you know, it's a $117 billion industry every year. That's how much it contributes to the Australian economy and employs 600,000 people. So, I mean... It's just disgraceful. And Jenna, Jenna Price, um, who is works at UTS um, and wrote an her- um, article in the Herald earlier this week, was a fantastic piece. I would encourage anyone listening to go ahead and read that to see what's taken place. But um, as one of, one, of, one of my good friends would say, um, the only person you're robbing of um, when you take money away from universities is the next generation because they are literally the future of what's going to be, what's, what creates, what drives our economy, what, the ideas that we create, the technologies that we create, they're going to be at the precipice um, of that. So um, as far as I'm concerned, no money, more money in the budget for universities. I think it's been like a real cut of like 10%. And I know people criticise universities for being bureaucratic, bureaucratically inefficient um, and you know having three people can do, you know, to do one per, per person's job. But... They literally, they've had to move their budget model because their real spending hasn't gone up in 20, 25 years or um, I can't remember the exact uh, period of time, but they've had to diversify into that. And sure, you could say they've got too many professional staff as opposed to research staff, but that's only you reallocate the funding within the university or it doesn't mean you're stripping it away. Um, And it's an extremely short-sighted play. Uh, I dare say it's um, a very political play in the sense that the idea that more university-educated people, they don't vote for the coalition um, so as opposed to more tradies um, but that's just the political take on that um, so I'd love to get your thoughts on that Isabella before we go into some of the other er- other areas okay a few things the first thing I'm curious about is are they 
actually cutting spending or they're just not adding to their spending because they did spend another one billion um, in stimulating universities last year in last year's budget and universities it, it's not like they're not getting assistance from the government um, expenditure in 2023-24 is estimated at 9.3 billion for our universities which is a pretty decent spend is that 19 or 9.3 9.3 right did you think it was I, I, thought, I thought that was spending 19 billion on tertiary but that might be across that across might all be across aspects. yeah um, but that's fine you know what, what, what I think the issue is right obviously they, they've shifted their model right so the proportion of funding from what government actually gives them is reduced to what they actually receive from international students right so when the international students who pay four times what a domestic student pays that funds all the the world class research that our universities have been at the front forefront of for so long. And for a country as a small as small as Australia to have three or four was it was it six universities in the top hundred rankings is truly remarkable compared to what the US and the UK and Europe, universities across Europe um, can endorse. And we've already seen that sort of effect go backwards with only two um, featuring in the most recent um, university rankings. So. Um, but in saying that, it's not that they're not well-funded. I mean, they are well-funded, but I think... And look, I'm stepping back, not looking yeah. at this so much from the policy perspective, but from what I think the average person sees in the news. But the universities happily made their bed with international students. And as someone who's been through five years of university, I know that domestic students always came second to international students. They would do anything for the international students. And to an extent, I think there is a bit of public outrage at the thought of giving these universities so much money, more money, to make up for this loss of international students when they're, they're so heavily funded already. What are they doing with those funds? And in terms of... Um, I mean, um, the fees that domestic students pay compared to international students. Domestic students can only afford to pay such little in university fees because the government um, Commonwealth grant scheme subsidises most of our degrees. And that's why, I don't know if you remember last year when there was that big outroar, uproar about um, the jobs ready policy where the government wanted to reallocate that those um, government grant schemes amongst the different degrees to encourage students to... I do recall that. Yeah. And um, in terms of the funding for those courses, courses like um, mathematics and IT, they're extremely affordable for domestic students because the government puts so much money into those courses. So my point with that is that... I mean, you're acting like the government has stripped all this money away from universities, but they are giving them so much money. And I think that, you know, restructuring isn't the worst thing in the world. Most businesses restructure all the time. It's an efficiency thing. But if we just keep pumping money into them um, without any consideration of how that money is being allocated and whether it's the most efficient allocation of resources, then... You know, I don't know if that's necessarily the best use of taxpayer money. I agree with your point about research, but well, that's where it comes in, right? That's the whole point. So, the lot, the most of this funding goes towards the funding of domestic students, right? But that's only one aspect, right? 
that that's the that's a teaching side of it. But who are going to be taught by if they're not finding the research at that cutting edge of often what industries get driven for? Right? There's a reason universities aren't businesses, right? It's because it gives the ability to explore with ideas, and this is where the often the ideas that businesses adopt come with universities, right? And I welcome any uh, additional policy that connects universities more with businesses because you see that in Germany, you see that across some Southeast Asian countries and they have a very successful model. But in saying that, Australia's university system is very successful, right? They've built themselves to the third largest export that we have, right? So the stronger the universities are, the stronger the economies are. Economies are right? And as I said, right, the more money you pump in, the more you get back. With not many other public assets or any asset in you know what what in what uh, world do these days do you get to pump one dollar into universities and you get five dollars back? Where else do you get that? Do you even get that with Bitcoin? Who knows? But like not at the moment. That's right. Like what what's like? I mean, this is what we're, we're talking about, right? This but is. Then why can't they get any private funding for universities if research is such a priority and businesses are using this research and it's so valuable? Surely you can get some private funding for research. Well, I mean, the, the private sector has been propped up by the government over the last 12 months, so it hasn't been exactly been the best time. But I welcome any any further collaboration that we could do. That's one area that we could definitely improve on in relation to commercialization of ideas developed at universities. Um, and there's, you know, there's smart collaborators done, especially in areas like biotech, medtech, IT. You know, these are, these are huge future employers as well. But we can't forget what is the bedrock of our society in relation to um, the sort of liberal arts and how much that generates as well. So um, I don't want to spend too much more time on universities, but I think um, we've got to a, a sort of a good point there and you've raised some good points and I'm happy to be the uh, contrarian to that. Uh, but in relation to some other areas, uh, one close to my heart, um, Indigenous recognition in the Constitution or even social policy measure areas when it comes to closing the gap. I think it was like $100 million for some small-scale program, but absolutely nothing. I mean, this is this is disgrace. There is no other word to say besides disgraceful. I know I've used that one word earlier about relation to universities, but we this is 2021. We live. So the in, the Uluru statement of the heart was released in 2017, in what was quite a generous offer from the indigenous population, right? Offering truth telling about our past and what actually has taken place, uh, reconciliation, um, and a voice to parliament. And none of this third chamber, it always got, got off on the wrong path when Malcolm Turnbull on the q and I still remember it said it'd be a third chamber of parliament. In what fantasy land is a guy living where it's going to be a third chamber of parliament? All they wanted was to be able to accurately represent themselves to parliament. So when it came to issues that affected them, we all know when policy outcomes are much better, when the people who are affected by the policy are directly involved in the process making, they wanted to be a part of that, right? And here we are four years down the track, poor old Kenny White in there in the federal cabinet room, Probably can't even get a word in, um, and you know when we're no further to any any sort of real action on, on closing the gap or whatever in terms of re, you know sort of health areas or ec- uh, educational areas. There has been some measures met thanks to some great um, NGOs that do some good work in relation to getting Indigenous kids into primary school and retention rates in high school, but still the health outcomes and uh, employment outcomes are nowhere near. Uh, where they're on an equal footing with non-Indigenous Australians. Um, and it comes back to what society, what sort of society that we live in. That's what the ultimately what the budget is about, is what's the sort of, sort of society that we live in. We can afford to do anything that we want, we just can't afford to do everything that we want. And that's what the budget prioritises this way. Do we really want to be spending billions and billions of dollars of worth on submarines that have no guarantee of being here 
by the time I'm still alive or the last one I'm, by the time I'm still alive? Or do we want to make the average person's life better off? And that's certainly what makes, gets me up in the morning as an economist. And again, I don't want to be standing on my soapbox here, but uh, Bob Hawke, um, who I think is probably the last politician to really traverse the political lines um, and sort of seek common ground, said that we can't consider ourselves a great country until uh, we get recognition and reconciliation onto the forefront of the agenda and we see some real inroads in this area, right? And this Indigenous recognition in constitution, the truth-telling of the Makarata Commission uh, and a voice to Parliament, um, it's a fairly gracious offer from Indigenous people to reconcile what's happened in the past and there's no action on this. Um, and I'm glad in the Labor budget reply speech they said that in the first term there'd be a referendum on this. And if in 1967 we can get up a, a, recon- a, a majority um, referendum in it, so the majority of votes and the majority of states forgive Indigenous people the right to vote, surely in 2021 we can come together and put together a campaign that would ensure the success of the referendum. Your thoughts? In terms of the social policy, I don't really know enough about it to comment extensively. When I saw on the agenda that you wanted to discuss this, the first thing that came into my mind was, I mean, because this is a budget and we're talking about ways of spending money, were you expecting them to announce social policy within the budget or...? Well, social infrastructure is economic infrastructure. I'm going to quote John Fowles on there. Um, it's, I mean, we invest in social infrastructure so we get better economic dividends, right? So it's, I, I don't see them mutually exclusive, right? Social, I always think, consider that the socioeconomic thing, that's what I like to bring together, right? Because that's ultimately what an economist's job should be in my perspective, uh, is to bring the social and the economic together to create better outcomes, whether that's increasing someone's earning potential or giving someone a better education so they can uh, go ahead and, and get, you know, seek the most opportunity for themselves, right? But um, social policy is an integral part of what a federal budget does, right? Um, and you can say, you know, you, you know, there's multiple social policy areas that the states are responsible for, but this is an area that's an, a national issue. And I just think, again, we just put, put it to the back burner, put it to the back burner. I mean, we saw with the, the same-sex marriage plebiscite, that got up, um, even though it took um, a lot of political will um, and a lot of toing and froing. Uh, 61% of the population recognise that. For me, this is nowhere near as a sort of a, a divisive issue as, you know, same-sex marriage because you don't have all the religious nuts that dri- driving that. And again, I, I, I call, I'm a Catholic, but um, as you can tell, I'm probably a pretty progressive Catholic. Um, so, yeah, the, the, I think that's enough on the on indigenous recognition, but um, action needs to be taken on that. And, you know, if Labor needs to take that to the election as a, as a key pledge for, for government, then I don't think that does any harm. In fact, I probably think it accelerates them in one area where the coalitions move towards more towards Labor uh, in terms of economic spending and economic argument. Um, so I think that's enough on the, the losers. There was obviously climate was a loser, but we touched on that earlier, um, and that's a whole other can of worms I'm conscious of time. Uh, but we've got a few discussion points here. Um, as I said, we've already gone through. We're we getting bang for buck. Um, is it a step in a direction or a political patch-up job? I think we've discussed that. Mm-hmm. But this little next little segment I call Nostradamus. Uh, in for those of us, for those of you who are tuning in for the first time, perhaps you haven't tuned into my co-host, uh, my usual co-host Joe Boyden, uh, who usually gives his football Nostradamus 
um, for upcoming weeks or something that he um, sort of expects to happen. That's quite a bold play for the season. But this one will be actually reframing it in the sense of the budget assumptions. Right? One of the key things in economics right, is you can make economic modeling look as, as good as you want, depending on all the assumptions you make. right? Mm. And the assumptions in the, uh, this budget, there was quite a lot of them, and they're quite important to how the economy shapes forward in terms of budget deficit numbers, uh, in terms of how strong the economic recovery will be in the long term. So the first one here is um, iron ore prices. Now, last week they were sitting at $220 um, a tonne, uh, but the budget still estimates them at $55. Uh, I'm not sure whether they know something that we don't. Yeah. Um, but you think even if there is a fall off, it won't go to $55. And as long as that expectation excuse me, continues to um, be exceeded, um, then obviously the budget bottom line will continue to improve. Um, well, so I think not, that's always nice. They have a bit of insurance in there. Yeah, I think there is too. Um, not sure. I think that probably means more to WA listeners for all you WA listeners tuning in on the uh, other side <laughs> of the Nullarbor. Uh, how are you going? Um, and the other one is that we are shut up shop um, to 2022 um, or to the later half of 2022. Um, obviously, there is the expectation that vaccination efforts will be largely completed by the end of this year, um, but the government being a bit more conservative in relation to um, border issues, I think they've seen the success of the states in internal migration, um, putting up, you know, shutting up shop if there's one case or two cases. Um, what, are you, what are your thoughts on this? I know you, you want to talk about migration, so perhaps you can connect the two here. Um, obviously, one area of economic growth is um, population growth outside of productivity um, and participation. So what are your thoughts on that? So wait, just to clarify, are you saying that they're assuming that we're not going to open our borders until 2022? Yeah, mid to late 2022, I think, is the official language or something along those lines. I mean, I don't love the sound of it, mostly because I want to get to go to Europe at some point. <laughs> Maybe you can spend those dollars, <laughs> dollars here. <laughs> Stimulate the domestic economy. I can only go to Byron Bay so many times. Um, are we talking about whether it's a reasonable assumption or whether they should? Whether whether it's you can, you can take it however you want. Whether it's a reasonable assumption, I think it's probably a reasonable assumption given how pl- uh, risk averse mm-hmm. people are. But in terms of the economic recovery, I mean, it only the, this domestic sort of demand trap that we're in, as Shane Wright would say from Sydney Morning Herald. Um, can only last so long. There's only a certain amount of coffee machines or, certain, as you said, a certain amount of Byron Bay trips you can take before um, you want to you fly, fly your coop and, and go overseas. Yeah, um, I think that you're completely right in the sense that people are not going to travel domestically forever. Australians are known for travelling overseas a lot considering how small a country we are. So people do start to get... Um, a bit jumpy being stuck in Australia and the whole discounted flights and this encouragement to travel domestically is stunted by the fact that the states close their borders every five minutes. So in terms of whether I think that that's reasonable to keep the borders shut until then, I don't personally agree with it, but I think that it would be political suicide to do anything else. So the reason I don't necessarily agree with it is because principal grounds, and but you I, politically you understand the ramifications of it. Yeah, it's it's a bit of both. On the one hand, it's principal. I think it's ridiculous how slow we're 
bringing Australians home, especially in light of what's happening in countries like India. Um, but I also, of course, understand the public health consideration. I just think we started this thing out by saying that we were going to have a policy of accepting a, a reasonable level of COVID in the community. And then for some reason, it got misconstrued into we can't even have one case. Yeah. Otherwise, we have to go into complete shutdown. And I completely commend the New South Wales government in the way that they have handled it. But the other states... Well, that have- is- I know, homegirl Gladys, yes. I have been very impressed by the way she particularly handled this recent Bondi case compared to the way that these snap um, lockdowns have taken place in other states. And so in terms of Australia's progress economically going forward, unless we review some of these public opinions towards... Um, our acceptance of COVID in the community, that's going to continue to stunt our growth. Um, And areas like tourism are really going to suffer because right now we've got a chance to um, encourage a fair bit of domestic travel, especially, um, you know, I'm probably relating it to the East Coast because it's all I know. But, you know, people want to go to Queensland all, all the time. I've heard so many people that have booked Queensland trips and cancelled them three times. Yeah. I've so, been to Queensland myself, actually. Oh, you made it through. Yeah, and I made back. it through. The key, the key thing, if those for the people listening on the line, looking for life tips in relation to how to get travel across the line these days, is you've got to book it three days out, and then you've got to go, and then you've got to be back. You, then you're back, right? None of this, <laughs> not none of this forward planning, right? Get in, get out, right? I know it must be hard with limitations around work and so forth, but. Um, well, that, I was that, gonna say, where are you gonna stay? That reduces your risk. Well, there's plenty. There's plenty of accommodation. There's plenty of accommodation, um, uh, especially if you go off peak. Um, but um, <laughs> as you said, I find it. I found it. Um, sort of some of these facts around like what this sort of domestic demand trap that's taken place fascinating. That Australians spend more overseas than what the rest of the world spends here when they come for holidays. Yeah. I suppose we're an advanced economy, and you know, as I said, we, you know, we're known for being flying the coop. Um, but even like even internally, WA has they've seen a, a huge internal um, dom- um, sort of domestic holiday expansion because um, WA people spend more uh, in the rest of the country than what people go to WA and spend. <laughs> So I mean, like this is little funny nuances that sort of again getting back to assumptions is like, did people really did economists, despite their best intentions, really take all of this in in consideration? Again, a a lot of this might be sort of have a sunset date on it, um, and we're going to have to get to a point. You know, we we are an open economy, right? You know, uh, a country of twenty five million people can only self sustain for such a period of time Mm. without that sort of international trade taking place, right? So. if the large portion of the people are vaccinated, then we'll see, um, hopefully, we're going to have to increase our risk appetite. You know, like, despite getting vaccinated, you don't increase your, what, 90, 95% of your time. There still might be a bit of transmission, but you, at least you'll stop from getting sick, severe sickness, or even, you know, in the worst case, possible death. So um, I think there's a lot more to come on that. Um, it seems to be an evolving discussion every couple of weeks that comes back into the negotiation, you know, whether it be Australians trapped overseas, or, you know, uh, whether it comes to the, the sort of um, understanding like when the vaccination program is wrapped up and then when people can travel after that uh, and, and so forth. But the final one I want to get to here, um, so Jennifer Westercott said last week that 
um, non-mining business investment uh, is still um, sort of much below where it should be. I think it's something like a 28-year low. Uh, don't quote me on that, but I'm pretty sure in the presentation she said that. Um, whereas the budget assumption is, predicts like a, a bounce back in non-mining business investment. Obviously, a lot of the eggs in budget measures uh, are put in this bucket the, with the instant asset write-off and the, the loss leading scheme um, that's been extended to 2023. Mm-hmm. Um, so... Do you, do you think that's re- reasonable that there'll be a, a big, all of a sudden, you know, businesses will come to realise, you know, that they've got to invest in a new tractor or, you know, a, a new machine for whatever they do? Or is this just all wishful thinking to sort of coincide with sort of upward looking budget estimates? Um, I think that it's a little bit of wishful thinking because you have to have the, the demand there to go and make these business investments. Just because I'm going to get an asset write-off doesn't mean that I'm going to invest in a $100,000 piece of equipment if I don't have the boost in demand to absorb that extra output I can now make. So I think there has to be more to that assumption than just using a tax write-off as an incentive to invest. Um, In saying that, I think policies like the um, patent box that the government had come yes, up with. I'm glad you mentioned that, actually. Yeah, the, the 15% um, tax incentive as opposed to the 30% company tax rate for um, revenue raised from, is it patents that pa- are developed patents, in yeah, Australia? Yeah, yeah developed in Australia. So intellectual property developed here, right? And that brings us in line with what the US, UK, and various countries across Europe do, just so we're, so we're not losing that sort of med tech, biotech space where it's easy to get patents Anyway, it's easy to develop that sort of IP overseas. So yeah. I definitely think that's a welcome idea. I think it was coming either way. Um, I think they were only it's only relatively modestly budgeted, I mean, like, you know, like $100 million a year or something uh, over the, over four years. Whereas if you would expand that across um, other areas, which are heavily, heavy in R&D uh, and heavy in um, early onset capital, like if you expanded it to like sort of uh, renewables, for example, you might see a much larger benefit seeing the sort of efficiencies that Australia can achieve uh, in renewable energy technology. Roscoe, I know if you're listening, that one was for you, mate. Um, and so, um, yeah, that, that was certainly a welcome idea. I know plenty of people around me who are a big fan of that. Like, And that goes to sort of the, the smart things we can do, like the digital economy, mm. strat- economy strategy. Um, that's a step in the right direction. But these innovative ideas when it comes to, again, how we de- how we pro- sort of develop economic activity and how we drive economic growth, um, they're going to have to come thick and fast over the coming years, right? And when an idea gets put on the table and it's, it might be involving like increasing the tax base at some level or um, shifting how we collect tax, we can't just be th- go to the thoughts of the meeting and say, oh, it's off the table, right? We've got to consider it, we've got, got to consider it right? Or at least give it the light of day to consider it and understand the implementations against each other. I think housing is a perfect example of one. They just love throwing fuel on the fire, whether it be, you know, accessing your super to um, get, get your first home um, or whatever it may be, home builder schemes, but effectively it's just making housing more expensive. It doesn't address the structural issues around supply um, and, and how we how we tax, um, tax capital and, and housing specifically. Um, so, I mean, these are these are the broad ranging broad ranging discussions that we can got to ha- got to have. And again, this is by far from a perfect discussion, but it gets a gets the um, ball rolling. Like these are the discussions we've got to be had had around tables, right? Because you know, what are we here for? Not making someone else's life better or trying to leave a better deal for the next generation, right? So, um, 
yeah, it's, I think we should probably wrap up there. Um, Isabella, thanks so much for joining us. That's okay. Um, Thank you so much for having me on here. That's all right. Um, it's been great. I enjoyed disagreeing with you for 47 minutes. <laughs> <laughs> that's the beauty of it. I often say I'm happy to have a discussion with people who disagree with as long as it's done on reasonable and, and factual grounds, then I'm more, ha- more than happy for <laughs> more it. More or less in my case. <laughs> exactly. So um, thanks very much for coming on. Uh, I hope you enjoyed this. Um, we'll be back in coming weeks when Mr. Joe Boyden is back from Canberra. Uh, I hope you're going well down there, mate. Um, say hello to the rest of your fam for me. Uh, and everyone else, make sure you send your questions in. We had hundreds, but unfortunately, we couldn't get to them today um, because we had a full agenda. But uh, take care and enjoy the rest of your week.